Listener Production. Listeners, I want to put a disclaimer on this episode. I was very nervous. You see, Maxine Beneva-Clark is my favourite author. Not one of my favourites, my actual favourite. And so there is more than a bit of heart-racing fangirldom in this chat. For those unacquainted, Maxine Beneba-Clark is an Australian writer of Afro-Caribbean descent whose work includes fiction, non-fiction, children's books and poetry. She has won literally all the prizes, from the New South Wales Premier's Award to the Australian Book Industry Literary Fiction Book of the Year. But Maxine is so much more than a mantelpiece heavy with trophies. Her books, her poetry and her musings on Twitter are a standout contribution to this country's discussion of race, of inclusion and of politics. She is a voice very worthy of your attention. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way, where Bron, Doizak and I recommend what to watch, read, listen, eat and do. But first, here is my conversation with the incredible Maxine Beneba-Clark. Maxine Veneba-Clark, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. I am so happy to have you here. Thanks, Jamila. Thanks for having me on. Now, the world knows you as a writer and a truly accomplished and multi-form writer at that. But I know that spoken word came first for you. What drew you to slam poetry? I think at the time, you know, I was writing poetry. The way I came to poetry was really through lyrics You know, I didn't read a lot of poetry when I was growing up, but I kind of was always studying those beautiful little lyric sheets that you got in in CDs on the back of records or whatever. And, you know, a lot of the artists I was listening to were bridging that gap between music and spoken word. So I was listening to songs like James Brown's Heroin King or, you know, The Last Poets of Gil Scott Heron. And so that's kind of how I got into spoken word. And I think after I'd started studying poetry, it was kind of, it was difficult to get published. So it was kind of like, how do I get my work out there? And then I found all of these venues that had open mics. So it was kind of like, well, this is a way of sharing my work with people um, without necessarily having that gatekeeper standing in the way. Having a live audience is so different to putting words on a page and sending it out into the world where you don't experience the audience's reaction to your work in real time. When you're performing, how do you know you've got the audience? I think it's that silence. In a way, it's the antithesis to stand up, but the similarity is you have to kind of gauge your audience. With stand up, at least you can adjust what you're doing. You know, if a joke's not working, you can kind of heckle the audience or or switch to something else. But with spoken word, once you've started that poem, you kind of have to commit to it. So it's almost the most brutal editing suite ever because once you've performed that poem, if the audience doesn't go with you, you have to go back to the drawing board and think, okay, why did I lose their attention? Why did people start talking over their beers or, you know, walking out of the room or whatever? But when a poem hits, you can actually see it on people's faces. And as a published writer now, you often don't get to see that. You know, your book gets on the shelf and, you know, unless someone texts you or tweets you or emails you or whatever and says, look, I like this book or this is what I thought about it, you don't get that live feedback. But actually seeing someone's face as you give your work to them, I think, 
you know, there's nothing like it. In 2015, my daughter, Maya Lou, will turn five. They say, show me a child at seven and I will show you the man. But I want to see the Mayas. Where are all the little word-loving brown girls whose mamas also gave them her name? So that every time we called our daughters, we would be inspired. The stand-up comics have got the endorsement of laughter to tell them, yes. yeah, I'm on the right track, I've got yeah. them. But if the endorsement yeah. comes from the silence, and I've been in a room where you're performing and it is a silence where everyone is so focused on every word you're saying, no one's even shifting around in their seats anymore, everyone's really still and silent. But I imagine if I was on stage, I'd also be like, do you like it? Or are you quiet because <laughs> it's rubbish? I think you definitely come to know. You can when- sense a different silence. Yeah, you can sense. And, you know, a lot of the places that I started out at that maybe don't exist anymore, places like what we called the spinning room in Paran, which was the upstairs room of this bar that every Tuesday night they just gave over to slam poets. It's not necessarily like a writer's festival where you kind of go and perform and then you go backstage. It's kind of you perform and you go and you sit in the audience and you become part of the audience So people will talk to you and they'll say, oh, I really love that one or I just didn't quite get what you were talking about in this. So it's not just audience silence. It was kind of you'd almost get notes after you delivered the work. Yeah, I love that. Um, Let's move forward in your career. In 2015 you published Foreign Soil, which is a book of short stories. You win a host of awards, including the Arbia for Literary Fiction Book of the Year 2015. And everyone give me some points there because usually I say Labia by accident when I mention the Arbias. So that was that was well done by me. But it is a very prestigious literary prize in Australia. How does success sit with you? Are you someone who is comfortable in that public success? Do you take a moment to enjoy it and kind of revel in it? Or do you sort of power on to the next task? I think in the early days, like when Foronso won the Arbia, and when I say early days, you know, we're talking about 2014 maybe-ish, the success was really important to me because this was a book that I'd struggled to get published, you know, Foreign Soil, primarily the protagonists are of African diaspora and the book's set, you know, in Australia, in London, in Jamaica, in Uganda. So it was kind of out of the box for Australian literature at the time at least, you know, the Arby is an award that's voted on by a massive industry, you know, booksellers and publishers. And and so that was a really important win for me because it was like, and I think also because I just thought, okay, the way we assess literature in Australia might be changing a little. But I think now it's more about being happy with the finished work. I mean, I still have, have books sometimes that, you know, have win awards and I go to read them. I'm doing a school visit or something. And I'm like, oh, that sentence just jars. I would never write it like that now. <laughs> so it's that constant self-assessment. And I think another Australian writer, Christos Tsiolkas, once said to me, look, you have to just put out the best work you can and then you give a, a, a publicity cycle to that book, whether it's four weeks or whatever, and then you have to just forget it and move on to, you know, it's always about creating the next, trying to raise the standard for the next work. And that really resonated with me, you know, that idea that you can't sit in in what you've done as a creator or as a writer 
And also because it just grates on you to constantly kind of be living in the work that you've already created. Yeah, absolutely. Your next published work was The Hate Race, which was also widely acclaimed. It won the New South Wales Premier's Prize. It's a memoir of your childhood and of growing up in Sydney, and it's told through a lens of race. Do you remember the first time that your race was pointed out to you by someone else? Yes, yeah. And, and I, you know, I talk about this in the book at, at preschool level, really. I mean, there were probably times before that where it was pointed out, but I was too young to actually digest that, oh, this is happening because I'm Black or they're saying that I'm Black. And it wasn't until someone actually said to me, oh, you're brown kind of thing, you know, another child, that it was not only the pointing out but the negative association, you know, that that child thought there was something wrong with that. Yeah, it's interesting. I loved the hate race. I loved every minute of it. And clearly I didn't grow up black, but I grew up as a woman of colour. And I remember really clearly being in, I think I was year two, so I would have been maybe seven, and I was one of the very few kids that sat out of Christian scripture class on a Thursday morning. And it was Mm. me and it was a little boy whose parents were from Hong Kong and a girl whose parents were Thai. And we all sat out and we used to tear the little bits of paper with the holes in it off the computer paper. That was our job, to get the computer paper ready for an hour every Thursday. And we actually thought it was quite fun. I think we were, you know, quite into it. And then a relief teacher took that session of supervising us, tearing paper, Mm. one day. And I remember she called us her little sweatshop. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was bad. And I never told my parents. I never Mm. told anyone, but I knew enough to know from the tone that it wasn't a compliment and that it wasn't a good thing. And one of the things you do so beautifully in The Hate Race is you bring that innocence of being a little kid who is still figuring all of this out, but at the same time knows so much. I want to ask about the skill of that because as an adult, embodying a child's voice is a particular talent. What do you have to do in your head to write as a child? It's a really interesting exercise, I think, because it's an exercise in trying to unknow what you know. Yeah. Particularly when you are writing a memoir and throughout your life you might have had these moments of realisation, you know, as you probably did with that comment when you're a bit older of going, oh, my goodness, that was so terrible. And at the time I just didn't understand the gravity of what was happening. And so thinking back to what it felt like, you know, in order to try and not make the narrative didactic and to have this adult voice constantly coming and saying, and these people are being racist. And I think it was actually really difficult to say, I'm just telling the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to lay any commentary over it. I'm, I'm going to try and think about what I knew as a six-year-old, as an eight-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old. And when you gradually get to the stage where you're a teenager and you actually understand everything that's happening, child's voice, even in fiction, it's one of my favourite mediums because there's also that exercise of I know that the reader is likely to be at least over 15. You know, some readers will be slightly younger. And so you're toying with that space in between what the reader knows for sure is happening and what the child narrator thinks is happening or is aware of. And you're also playing with that space in between there are some readers who'll catch on later in the book because they haven't had the same life experiences as you. So kind of creating that space, I guess, 
for different readers to come to a realisation at different points. Australia tends to be pretty good at glossing over its less than beautiful moments of history. But in the context of the fact that the invasion of this country was not really that long ago and that the white Australia policy was even less so, you have said in interviews elsewhere that your mother is of Guyanese heritage, your father is of Jamaican descent. Did you feel the recency of the white Australia policy in your everyday life growing up? I mean, as an adult, I can say yes. And even as a kid, it wasn't there, but I wasn't aware that, you know, four or five years before my parents migrated was the end of the white Australia policy. So essentially, you know, when I entered a school, it was with kids whose parents had had been raised to fear people of colour and also, you know, wasn't aware as a child because we weren't taught those things of the dispossession of First Nations people, the fact that we were living on black land. These were things that really came to prominence as for me as a child around the bicentenary celebrations and, you know, suddenly it was kind of like, why are these people marching across the bridge and having these discussions in class where the teacher would say, Captain Cook discovered Australia. Let's all write about Captain Cook. And I'd go home and my parents would kind of say, oh my gosh, (laughs) there were people here before Captain Cook arrived. And so in a way, that's what the hate race is about, is about landing in this environment where essentially it was like a hothouse for the kind of experience that I had as a child, because that's what the policy, immigration policy had been for years. My father and his family were one of the first test cases of non-white people brought to Australia when white Australia still existed. They kind of did some experiments first to see what what might happen. He migrated when he was seven or eight years old, but his siblings were older and he says his experience was so vastly different because he came with the consciousness of a seven-year-old as the only kid with dark skin at his school. There weren't Indigenous kids at his school. And then his brothers and sister came as teenagers and it was just a completely different sensibility because of their understanding of what was happening around them and their understanding of people's reaction, whereas his was a more simplistic one. And I say that because I want to ask about writing for children because you've written a number of beautiful children's books. What do you think are the greatest pitfalls of an author for children? What's the risk faced by a writer What are the traps that have to be avoided when you're writing for quite a young audience? I think underestimating the capacity of children to question and understand the world. You know, and that's not to say that kind of spot the dog or, or, you know, similar children's books don't delight children. But, you know, books are the way that particularly with the COVID world that kids actually learn about lives other than their own. And so if we're only giving them kind of, you know, other kids playing in the park with their dog and a ball because that's what you think your kids can recognise, then a book is not doing as much as it could. So I think that's probably the first one. The second one is probably language. I tend to kind of try and push the limits of the language that kids know, but hopefully providing enough context clues that they can figure out 
know, my book, The Patchwork Bike, the book's illustrated by Van T. Rudd and there's this illustration with a cranky mum with her hand on her hip. And the line on that page just says, and this is my fed up mum. When I read that book at a kid's story time, I say, what do you think fed up means? You know, they'll all kind of say she's cranky or she's annoyed or she wants a cup of tea. (laughs) And so, you know, that idea of not necessarily coming to the child at the level that you think they are, but providing enough clues that, you know, there's another word they can learn or there's something else they can learn about the world. And, yeah, and I think also, you know, as an illustrator, artwork, kids don't just like illustrations, they like art in books. And so I love books that don't just have Sam is going to the park and then the picture is Sam walking to the park. You know, the illustration might actually be, Sam being towed by his dog with mud all over him, you know, or that that the illustrations actually tell a story beyond the words. You live in Melbourne and the lockdowns were not kind to our city. How did you support your own family and your own mindset through such a complex and emotionally demanding time? And I suppose I'm asking that because I want to know what role storytelling plays in your parenting, particularly when stuff is tough? Look, I think I was lucky in a sense because, you know, financially, although a lot of my things like school visits and things dropped off, I already worked from home, you know, primarily. You know, I've always kind of made picture books on the kitchen table or, you know, wrote poetry in bed at night. So that practice didn't change. But, of course, it's different doing that when your kids are out of the house for six and a half, seven hours as it is when they're around all the time. Like my work pivoted to during the first 2020 lockdowns, I made a kid's book, a kid's picture book, because it was kind of this is something that I can do. You know, if my kids come in and ask me a billion questions while I'm illustrating, that's fine. But if they come and ask me a billion questions while I'm trying to write a literary fiction short story, (laughs) I'm going to lose my mind. So it was for me, it was about creating work that, fit into that dynamic. And I guess I was really lucky that I'd already was doing so much different work that it was just a matter of going, okay, this is going to work, this is going to work, and that's going to work, and these are the things I have to let go. I think being kind, you know, realising that there is nothing wrong with my kid watching TV all day today because it's been a long week and there's nothing else for them to do. (laughs) Yeah, kind of mitigating that. Like, you know, here are four semi-educational shows that are all sort of fun. (laughs) watch to try and make myself feel a bit better. Yeah, but I think just realising that it's just about getting through the day, like I think it was for every household, it was like, you know what, however we can get through this day together, that's going to be how we're going to do it. The number of times during those lockdowns where I got high and mighty and said to my six-year-old, yes, you can watch television for another three hours, but it must be number blocks. Yes. It's very educational content. <laughs> and you're a maths genius, so it's okay. From a financial perspective, the Australian government, I think, were generally good at supporting workers through the early parts of the pandemic, but there were some very clear exceptions, people who were essentially left out in the cold. And to my mind, they were academics, temporary migrants and artists. They were Mm -hmm. people who didn't have a salaried job and so JobKeeper wasn't available to them. You're an artist, you're an author, you don't exist in a vacuum, you exist amongst a community 
of your peers. How do you think the lockdowns have changed the literary scene in Australia? I worry that what it will mean is that for the next few years, only the people in the most privileged financial positions will be able to keep being artists. You know, when you have to feed a family, and, you know, part of the reason why the work I do is so diverse in terms of genres because you kind of have to do that as a writer in Australian literature, or at least most writers need to, if they intend to support their families with either writing work or writing adjacent work. And it's difficult because, you know, I'm a freelancer. There is no way for me to prove to the government that, well, my book came out during a pandemic and therefore I lost X amount of money in sales. There's no way to quantify that in order to get any kind of assistance. You know, I don't have super, I don't have holiday leave, I don't have sick leave. And so, you know, there's also that thing if even if you have work, well, what if you get long COVID or what if you, you know, have to not work for five weeks And I think just the government fundamentally not understanding or understanding but ignoring even the economic incentive for supporting artists. That book that is sold over a counter is giving me work, but it's also giving the designer work, the publisher work, the people driving the freight work, the booksellers work, the printmakers. It's an entire ecosystem. And so when you take the people at the bottom who are essentially feeding the whole ecosystem out of it, I think you have long-lasting problems that we'll probably see for years to come. During the pandemic, you've also turned back to poetry after playing with a whole bunch of different genres. What's that feel like? Does it feel a bit like going home or does it feel like doing it afresh and making something new? No, it definitely feels like going home. I feel like poetry is my first mode. You know, if I sat down to write something and someone said, write anything. And I think probably the only reason that I, that I ventured out of poetry initially, well, one of the primary reasons you can't make a living in Australia as a poet. Yeah. And so it was kind of, okay, I'm going to have to upskill and, you know, write prose and write journalism and write all these other things, which I now love writing also. But at the time it was kind of an exercise in, in trying to write in an, another form because there isn't that pressure that sometimes you have as a writer who's had any kind of success of this needs to sell or people need to love it or it needs to win a prize or I need to be able to get another book deal, and that falls away with poetry. I kind of just go, yeah, a couple thousand people might read this if I'm very lucky, so I'm just going to really enjoy writing it and do the best that I can. And it was a beautiful form to write in during the pandemic because short form, you know, um, so I could work on it over numbers of days and just in the gaps of life. Maxine, I want to thank you for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. I want to thank you for your beautiful books, your poetry, which has kept me sane through the pandemic, The Hate Race, which helped me understand my father's childhood better and the beautiful books that I'm now reading to my own kid. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Maxine Beniba-Clark. Her latest book is How Decent Folk Behave, which is a collection of beautiful poetry. I highly recommend it. I also recommend staying right where you are because Bron will be with me in just a moment for The Weekend List. Welcome to The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, listen, eat, this weekend. Welcome to Bron. It is your first weekend list. Are you nervous? 
A little. I'm glad to be here. Big shoes to fill with Tate and all the Dream Club gals. So massively big shoes. And also there's a lot of pressure because if you recommend something bad, the listeners will tell you about it, as I have been told on many occasions. Let's start with you, Bron. What have you got? Well, now you're getting me nervous. So the first one I've got is Belair, which is on Stan at the moment. So it's a dramatic retelling of The Fresh Prince of Belair, which is awesome. So the way it came out was this independent filmmaker, Morgan Cooper, he made a dramatic trailer just as a little side project. And then Will Smith got a hold of it. It kind of went viral. And all of a sudden it's made into a series. So they've got two seasons that they're signed on for. It's coming out week to week. So I've only seen a couple episodes so far. But so far, I'm loving it. Do you know why I'm here from Philly? Scrap on the bull court. Got nasty. Was it you? Now some bad man from Philly want to deal with you. That is wild. I was a massive Fresh Prince fan in my youth. Now I sound about 90 years old. I'm ready to go again on Stan. It's on Stan. So they've got like, what I love about it is there's a few little Easter eggs from the old episode. This is definitely more dramatic version. It's not as comedic or lighthearted as the old one was, obviously, but I'm really enjoying the new take on it. The fresh take, if you will. (laughs) Very well done there. Very well punned. I want to recommend a book that won't come as a surprise for any of you who've just heard our incredible interview with Maxine Beniba-Clark. I would like to recommend The Hate Race, which is the memoir of Maxine's childhood, which we did touch on in that discussion. This book is one that I read about five years ago and it has absolutely stayed with me. I think about this book more often than is sort of I'd like to admit, because it's a little bit embarrassing, because I am such a fan of Maxine. It is so evocatively told, the way Maxine writes in a child's voice, but about such complex and nuanced topics is incredible. It's not a hard read, if that makes sense. It's not a read where you'll feel laboured or overwhelmed by the complexity of it. It is beautiful in its simplicity, and it will get under your skin and it will stay there. If you are looking for something to get you back into reading. I know a lot of people have had a bit of a pandemic reading slump. I am one of them. Then this is a really great gateway. I'll have to read that one. You've convinced me. I've I've loved the chat with Maxine. The next one I've got for you is on Netflix. I'm a bit late to the party. It's called Tinder Swindler. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's probably on everyone's Everyone's (laughs) talking about this. Tell us, is it worth our time? I really liked it. So it's from the producers that made the incredible documentary Don't F With Cats, which is another great doco if you haven't seen it. But it's about this guy called Simon Levev. So he kind of cons all these women into thinking he is a billionaire, a diamond mogul, and cons them all out of money. I don't want to give too much away, but it is an incredible watch. It goes for maybe about two hours, but I loved every second of it. It's really interesting. It pulls you into the characters. It tells you like the ins and outs of what actually happens and and how they the women get their revenge, I guess. But yeah, I loved, loved this doco. When I first talked with Simon, immediately we had a bond. I shared my whole heart with him. And then he asked me if I wanted to travel with him on a private jet. He said there was something he wants to tell me. He said he has threats against him. He needs our cash. $20,000, His life depended on me. That's when police tell me the man I loved was never real. Everything's a lie. 
Okay, you've sold me, you've sold me. It's been coming up on my recommendations and I'm ready to dive in now. <laughs> Folks, I want to suggest something live and in person because I do feel like a lot of us are now creeping back out into the world and feeling more comfortable around big groups of people. I want you to hang out with a very big group of people. All About Women is back at the Opera House This is an incredible festival, which is what it says on the label, folks, all about women. It runs from the 12th to the 13th of March, and audiences are given the chance to reflect on burning questions about gender, about equality, and about justice. Honestly, you could go to any session at this festival and you would get your money's worth, but I want to particularly recommend After Consent, which is a discussion of women's rights, the Me Too movement, and safety in workplaces. Gosh, it's a good lineup. It's got Brie Lee, Lucia Osborne Crawley, Amy Thunig, and Saxon Mullins speaking there. I also want to recommend Clementine Ford's Love Sermon. This is Clem, as you've never heard her before, talking about love and motherhood and romance and children and friendship. And finally, for those political junkies, Laura Tingle will be with Anne Summers, and it is being billed as explaining it all. And if I could have Laura Tingle explain everything to me every morning of my life and just kind of more efficiently run what I'm doing. I would do that. And so you can get a dose of that on stage at the Opera House in March. I would grab your tickets now because a bunch of sessions are already sold out. Folks, that's it for the weekend list. Bron, congratulations on your Virgin mission. You were wonderful. We'll give you some feedback next week from the listeners. Folks, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode of The Weekend Briefing or indeed The Weekday Briefing, then you should follow us. You can do that in the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, if you want to leave us a rating and a review, that would absolutely make my day. I would just be so delighted if you did that, particularly if it's a nice rating and a nice review. Folks, we will be back in your ears bright and early Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.